Welcome to the latest edition. Today I'm talking to a very funny human being. She's a comedian. She teaches yoga. She does many other things, which we'll hear a little bit about very uh, shortly. And her name is Stella. Hello, everybody. Hi, Stella. I'm good, thank you. I'm a little under the weather, uh-huh. um, so I have a questionably sexy voice <laughs> because. Um, <laughs> Not everybody would think my voice is sexy. At the moment, so. <laughs> I don't think it's bad. I think it's, it's it's still fine. It's not bad, but it's not good. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have said it's not bad. I should have said it's good. It's fine. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I'm not sure always. because I don't I don't think there's much difference between when we met. Oh, and, and now I don't really hear much of a difference. <laughs> That's hilarious. Okay, because I'm super snotty, but it's okay. <laughs> So you had a good um, holiday? You were gone for a holiday? Yes, I was gone to Perth. I don't know if Perth is really a holiday. I'm still trying to figure out um, Perth's positioning. You were not at home. That's not bad. Well, I wasn't at home, but is Perth, like, it's Perth's positioning in the world. It's really far away. Right. (laughs) Like, um, it took a really long time to get there, and I realized that I was still in the same country, and I was like, Wow. We didn't go anywhere. <laughs> like, I'm still in the same <laughs> country. The same what country. did you expect? So, what, what does, how does a holiday look for you? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Like, if I fly that long and if it takes me that long to get there, yeah. I better be somewhere else. Right. Does that make sense? Uh, what is a holiday? Really. Um, I don't know. Have, have I ever really taken a holiday? We only really started taking holidays, like family vacations, weird, weirdly. Uh-huh. But I lived on the road and I toured. And so, we were always changing countries and cities every five to seven to 11 weeks. Right. And so everything was always a holiday. My life was a holiday. So I don't actually know what a real for sure holiday is. All I know is that when I travel for so long mm-hmm. before yeah. I was in a completely different place. Now I'm still in the same fucking place. Same place. <laughs> same yeah, place. Yeah. So. I was keen to hear. Can you can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, Stella? Is your surname Ume? Ume, yeah. Ume. Can you tell us a bit about Ume? Because I know when we had a bit of a chat, you told me you were North American. Yes. But uh, your parents are from Africa and two different countries. Two different countries. So my na- last name Ume, it's Ibu, uh, Nigerian, and it actually was shortened. Um, by before my dad so it wasn't my dad's i think it was my dad's dad that did it my grandfather um it was ume zurumba (laughs) don't hate (laughs) i love it i mean that's like a fucking that's like a that's like a dance hall built in right it's like amazing right right but um I don't know if the rest of the world could have handled that. So (laughs) it's just been shortened (laughs) to Ume. And it actually means breath of life. Wow. Which is very cool. So I have really big names. I have great names. My parents gave me some really great names. So Stella means star. Mm. Uh, My middle name is Ungozi. uh, means blessed. And my last name is Ume, breath of life. My father uh, is a Nigerian. And my mother is Guyanese, South American. So there's like, there's some color color and energy in our house if right, you will yeah and uh, myself and my sister i have an older sister and we are canadian we were born and raised there um and then i set up tent here in australia only in 2018 mm-hmm. so i've been a woman of the world for a hot minute right and now i live in newcastle right and why why was the name shortened do you know about that no i have no idea why it was shortened i have no idea None at all. I've never really asked that question. Oh, or I think right. I might have. And my dad was like, I don't know. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, your, your, so your dad was a first-generation immigrant? Yes, first-generation immigrant to Canada, yes. Right, right. Because I'm trying to figure out whether the shortening has anything to do with trying to please whiteness because your name is difficult to pronounce it, and all It that. may have been because my father was raised in like a pretty heavily colonial time in right. in Nigeria and therefore his father was um his dad was a cook for an english family mm-hmm. and it's really odd and i guess this is like one of those situations where you have two different generations understanding and understanding the same experience or the same situation differently so when my dad talks about his upbringing and his life in Nigeria, he speaks actually really highly mm. of a very fucked up thing, which is colonialism. Yeah. Yeah. And the English missionary family, I've got a whole feeling about sort of white evangelism going into black nations or mm. uh, minority nations or nations of different color and doing not very fond of it it's not that i'm not fond i don't necessarily entirely understand it. i myself have never been a missionary so i can't speak to yeah. i can only kind of speak to how i feel about it from yeah. an outside perspective but it's not in a negative way it's just in a way mm-hmm. of like not having the full uh the full picture because i've never actually investigated yeah. it but it definitely is a question that's, is yeah. that pulled but, out of my but head. have you got anything to say about uh Christianity in itself and the whole criticism that, you know, it's a colonial religion and stuff. Oh, man. I mean, I was raised Catholic, <laughs> though it's not not Christian. Okay. We're Catholic. <laughs> For those that are Catholic will understand what I mean when I say we're Catholic. We're right. kind of like the crew that goes in there and mass back in my day used yeah. to be 60 minutes. And 61 minutes, people are you know, throwing Big. stones. Oh, yeah. Well, not happy. Mm-hmm. Wrap go. it up, right? I think the time is the less, less than 60 minutes. And then they trimmed it down. I was yeah, shocked. Yeah, but this is probably because of COVID. No, 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 no. This was trimmed before COVID. They were able to get everything that they used to do in 60 <laughs> minutes down to 45. I was like, damn, these kids aren't playing. Right. And you see Catholics get all itchy <laughs> and uncomfortable <laughs> in their seat. And 46 minutes, they're like, why aren't we done yet? Oh, I have goodness. gone down on my knees. I have stood up. Right. I have said my Apostles' Creed. Right. Why are we not done? Yeah. So, um, to answer your question, or in my opinion, um, I think the way I was raised in a Catholic home with a faith-based upbringing wasn't centered around... The idea of the like the colonial Christianity. Does that make sense? It was really all about faith. Really living a life, a faithful life based on faith, based on believing in things I cannot see. Okay. And basing my decisions and my life and being appreciative for the blessings that have come into my life. Does that make sense? But is that is that still Christianity or you call it something else? No, I mean, I, I call it Christianity. It's my faith in God. So, I mm-hmm. that's the way that I walk my spiritual life. I believe in a Christian God, right? Mm-hmm. But I have nothing... I don't have uh, an adverse opinion or negative opinion or, or any kind of criticism over whether someone else calls it something else. Right. 
or believes in it in a different way. It's just walking a faithful life based in spiritual understanding and a quest for that is important to me. So mm-hmm. that's what I focus my attention on. Um, in terms of like like this this thinking when my dad would speak about his upbringing and about this missionary family that they were so grateful for the the woman i can't remember her name um she actually turned to my dad's parents so my grandparents and wanted so my dad is one of five children Mm -hmm. and wanted to they wanted to take my father and his sister lila back to the uk to like just give us your kids and we'll take them back okay (laughs) his parents were like yeah, nah, we're not gonna do that. Yeah, but I mean, I appreciate that you asked. Yeah, and so he was like, "Yeah, no, they really wanted to take us back," and they gave us our Christian names. They they named them David and Lila, mm. and so it's it. But he, but there was no sort of negativity to that because of their experience didn't lend to that. It wasn't a negative experience, but on the outside looking in, from my perspective, going, mm-hmm. what, what? Hang on a second. You got an English family coming in there that are missionaries that are already working to alter, to change, to fix, I don't know what it is, the way of life that you've lived, and then want to take two little black babies back to the UK just because they can mm-hmm. I was like yeah no 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 that's that's <laughs> yeah, that's not good yeah right it's and so but that's what I'm saying about two different generations seeing mm. one experience and having two different opinions about it yeah for my dad that wasn't like a bad thing uh, but to me I think that's that goes to like the bigger question or the bigger conversation which we're all really having now right. more than yeah. in the 60s the 60s was a different kind of conversation Mm -hmm. my father went over to canada as a part of um, an african convoy if you will of students they were the first african students that were taken to or offered a scholarship or offered position at a university in canada and he was a part of that and he went to uh Canada to study pure and applied mathematics. Mm-hmm. He ended up being an engineer um, from a university in Canada called University of Waterloo. Um, and so he was really excited about that, being being sort of like on the trailblazing trip of being one of 12, one of six, one of however many. It was very small. It was very, it was, it was under 20. Right. Being brought over to Canada or sent over to Canada or allowed to, opportunity to go to a new country and, and learn. But his intention was always to go back home because he wanted, he saw the British rule and what they were doing for their country infrastructurally in a positive way. And he mm-hmm. wanted to go home and be a part of that. That's why he became a, uh, an engineer. An engineer, yeah. And he wanted to be a part of that revolutionary or the the revitalization of his homeland. He was very proud of it. But then he was um, ultimately stopped. 
because the Biafran War in Nigeria mm. broke out, and he's Ibu, and it was said that uh, any Ibu student uh, studying abroad would be shot on the tarmac. So effectively, my father was granted mm. asylum in Canada, and he never left. So that's how it, it definitely wasn't the direction he had no in, he had no real intention of not going back to Army. Nigeria. Yeah. And so Canada became his second home, but it, it eventually became choice because when he was uh, got into the workforce, he was offered an opportunity to either work in the United States in Detroit or a company in Canada. And he opted for the Canadian company. So he did choose Canada mm-hmm. when that option was posed to him, but originally it wasn't his first. So how does he meet your mom? So my mom was st- my mom's youngest sister was studying at the University of Waterloo as well. Mm-hmm. And so they met in one of the classes like my dad and my aunt met in one of the classes and my dad's friend ended up being uh, getting together my my aunt and then my mom met my dad. Mm. <laughs> and that's all she wrote. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um how yeah, I wanted to tease out this from you, what belonging would mean and what freedom to belong would mean to you. I mean, North American, having parents from Africa, and you moved from Canada, now you're in Australia. What is belonging to you? Or what does belonging mean? Um, I guess I, I don't really think of... I'm like a turtle. Because I've been so sort of transient, though it sounds a bit vagabondish, I've lived my entire life on the road, and it's basically I carry my home on my back. And so I belong to whatever I can take. And trust me, I can take a lot. Like, I populated this entire house and then some. (laughs) I can take a lot. Right. But I guess I don't really belong to anywhere in particular I belong everywhere because I I honestly think that we have an opportunity with this whole vast planet at our fingertips to go and investigate and learn and travel and be a part of and gain new experiences by leaving our space, leaving our comfortable home so the idea of belonging is a I think it's a It's a construct. It's actually a construct, really. Because it's to each his own to decide where, how, what belongs to where you belong. And given that, as you say, both of my parents are immigrants to Canada, myself and my sister and our family are first-generation Canadians, and then not living in my homeland, living somewhere else, how can I really belong to anywhere? Though... My experience in terms of my life, as an elite athlete, I represented Canada. So I am Canadian. Like, there is no way I would ever give up my passport and give up my flag because I stood and watched it raise and sang my anthem and represented my country. So I guess in a way, I belong to Canada. Canada belongs to me, Mm -hmm. but I don't live there. It'll never leave me. It's a part of me. It's a part of my turtle back. Yeah. It always comes with me. 
Um, like I will hold on to this accent with dead cold hands. <laughs> Last breath, I will say out. You want to pronounce? I will say R's. out. I will say about. I will pronounce my R's. Like I will not give up. Okay. Right. Um, but yeah, I do. I I think that uh, a lot of some difficulty and strife could come with allowing one's mind oh i can't talk for anybody else my own mind to only live in one place mm-hmm. and then expect it to be the same experience when i go somewhere else i have to kind of go with the flow yeah. and find that footing and belonging in the experience so create it everywhere i go because living on on the road and changing cities like i said every five seven eleven weeks three months you can't really say you belong anywhere. Mm-hmm. Every experience is a brand new one, and that belongs to you, and it stays with you, and then you take it to your next spot. Right. Does that answer your question? Yeah. So well, I like your thought <clears throat> because, I mean, the idea of belonging for me, I've been thinking carefully about it. I mean, there's too many people create content about belonging and whatsoever. And sometimes I try to sort of think about belonging not just as through the lens of myself alone but also through the lens of my surrounding um whether it's my surrounding also positively receptive of me Uh. or it's rejecting me Uh. um but at the same time even spaces that we might feel like i really do belong here Mm. might have certain people who might reject you so to say exactly it's never gonna be clear cut because even in, in your own home you there's places that you should go and places that you shouldn't go places that you should belong to and places that you don't so it's it's a construct that you can't it's a fluid thing that it never stays solid and it's you that creates it um because you'll by making a decision this is where i want to be this is how i want it to go and i decide and then it becomes Mm -hmm. where you belong but that very same construct should we then overlook the surrounding, whether the surrounding is positively welcoming of you or not. No, I don't think we should ever overlook anything. It becomes a part of the situation, a part of the journey. Um, and then it's it's the way that we react and act and behave within that. So, for an example, so like, like let's not be completely abstract. Yeah. For an example, we come into a situation where the surroundings feel a little hostile. Like, oof, yeah. oof. I don't belong there. Like, it's not my spot. But what can I do to make it feel less like that mm-hmm. and more like my own spot? For black people, and this is an ongoing journey, and I think this is uh, a conversation and a question that's coming up with me more because I'm raising a child. Yeah. I don't think, I never thought about a whole lot on my own. Um, I never sort of like took into much consideration, oh, I'm black and I know it when I walk in a room. Moving to the United States opened my eyes ever so slightly to actually having that conversation. It wasn't there in Canada, mm-hmm. though it was really obvious. Like there was like four kids of color. Yeah. <laughs> we got one of every, right? One East Asian, two Africans, yeah. one was from yeah. Egypt, the other one, me, whatever, mixed <laughs> from everywhere, but not born in Canada. The contemporary version of exactly. diversity, which exactly. whatever that means. Just the one of each, yeah, right? One and of one, each. You, one Latinx, and just yeah. one Asian. 
I've got the five of us. <laughs> and then everybody else. But even within that, where I grew up was a completely um, immigrant city. So we, my little town, or my little city, which is not that little, but it's right by the international airport. I only live five minutes. My parents only live five to ten minutes away from the international airport. That is literally the first stop when you come to Canada. Mm-hmm. And you can always tell like the kind of immigration situation of the country yep. based on who was living at the time in our little town. When I was growing up, it was all Western European. Mm-hmm. So it was Italian, Maltese, Portuguese. That's who lived there. That's who I grew up with. That's all I knew. So the Catholic church I went to was populated with all Italian mass, the Filipino mass, and then the mass for everybody else. (laughs) And like, but now there's been a huge shift. Um, Southeast Asian migration has been massive in Canada. So we have a massive, in my parents' um, area, have a massive Punjab, massive Mm -hmm. Hindu, massive um, um, Sikh, population where they live and so but all the western europeans have left so you can really see it very clearly mm-hmm. who's coming into the country based on who actually lives in, in my little place malton mississauga right. yeah so i always grew up in a place where I, I didn't look like everybody else but i knew i belonged because it was my home and why shouldn't i we all had we were all entitled to being having the same experience and we were all kids of immigrants, which was interesting. So I grew up all surrounded by children of immigrant parents. It didn't really matter where we were from. We all had the same experience mm-hmm. of immigrant parents being like, do not bring shame. <laughs> yeah. Go to university, get a degree. You yeah. know, like it was all the same conversation. Yeah. And it didn't even matter where all our parents came from. So me seeing the color of my skin, it never really occurred to me until I went to the United States. And in the United States, I was like, oh, this shit is for real. <laughs> Motherfuckers, they do, they do racism on a whole different level. What the fuck is that? <laughs> I was shocked. Culture shock. And I had been around the world, and I never, ever considered, even in Bulgaria when I was 11 years old, I had this little old lady walk up to me on the beach and try and rub off my skin. I was like, yeah, homie, it doesn't come, it doesn't come off. It doesn't come off. Which is really funny because we were by the Black Sea. It, it was just. I was like, I'm your first one, aren't I? You're not my first short little Bulgarian old lady, but I am apparently your first brown child. Oh my goodness. She rubbed it. She I was like, nah, it's not coming off. And it was funny because I, I remember everybody else was mortified because we were on a team walk on the beach. Fucking cold. Right. But we were on a team walk on the beach. And I was like, <gasps> and I was like, yeah, apparently she never seen one of me. <laughs> Why are you guys mortified? She's probably scared shitless right now. <laughs> so because I don't even know where I was going. With that. <laughs> I can't remember. I can't remember. Oh, my God. You lost me also. <laughs> Completely. See, it's good to get lost in a good story. You were talking about... What was I talking about? You were talking about uh, your area where you grew up. You were basically explaining the demography. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, and how the U.S. does it on a whole other yeah. level. Okay, so um, me going through that, it didn't even occur to me even then that I was a different color. Like, it didn't... Color wasn't an issue or wasn't a conversation. Uh-huh. And then when I went to the United States and I uh, attended UCLA... And um, there's a big drag in the middle. It's called Bruin Walk. And I remember going through my recruitment process um, where 
a lot of Southern schools had reached out and said, Stella, do you want to come do gymnastics with us? And my, you know, limited knowledge, just what I read in books and what I hear on the radio was, yeah, black people get killed in the South. So (laughs) I'm not going there. Right. But thanks for asking. Yeah. That was all I thought I knew. I didn't know until I knew. So I said, oh, okay, let's go to the most liberal, uh, most progressive state in the nation, which Mm -hmm. is California. I was expecting it to be because they all touted, oh, it's a melting pot. It's this. Everybody, they got all college shapes, sizes, genders, you got everything (laughs) in California. And I went to California and I was like, oh, yeah, it looks like Canada. Everybody is of different shapes, Mm -hmm. sizes, colors, races, ethnicities. But no one's mixing with each other. Yeah. No one's talking to each other. They're all still segregated in little pockets mm-hmm. of your own kind. And I'm like, now that now y'all threw me a curveball. Because I wasn't expecting this. I was like, okay. Right. Wait, hang on a second. Y'all said that you were a melting pot. This is like a melting pot of oil and water. Y'all yeah. bounce off each other. Ain't, and, ain't melting. What? It's the, nothing is melting in yeah. here. Y- y'all still on a, on a very cold simmer, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, so I had a real culture shock when I went to California. And I struggled at university. I didn't know where I fit. Uh, I didn't know where I belonged. Right. Because I was a black, female, Canadian, so foreign gymnast. Hmm. And I'm like, oh, oh okay, so who do, who do I hang out with? Do I hang out with the gymnasts? Do I hang out with the black students do i hang out with female athlete students mm-hmm. do i hang out who do i hang out with do i hang out with a group of foreign students who the fuck do i hang out so i hung out with nobody i went through a five-year depression wow. at ucla i was in probably the worst place emotionally and my mental health was a fucking mess and i grew up in the 80s and the 90s we didn't talk about mental health yeah. we're generation x we well. just did our shit <laughs> we just get all with yeah. it we're all traumatized yeah. our yeah. childhoods are all fucked up yeah. and we're the group that's like i mean <laughs> you just do <laughs> you do right you push on through and so i didn't really know it i didn't actually identify it when i was in the middle of it it wasn't until many years later i was like oh my god so fucked up yeah i was like full that was the biggest culture shock of my life and so that's when it became evident to me that oh race and color and ethnicity that thing's a thing that's a thing yeah um what do i do about it and then i started touring around the world and i'm like well i fuck i look different from everybody everywhere i go so what ifs right went kind of right back to being canadian but not you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and then um i moved to australia and my sister has been living in this country for 20 plus years. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I can't sit here and tell you all about Australian uh, history. Everybody's going to know more than me. Um, but the little that I do know, it's problematic. Yeah. And I remember visiting my sister for the first time in 2004. And we were sitting at a table, ironically, having kangaroo steaks. Because when in Rome... I wonder how many Australians actually eat kangaroo steak. Is it a lot, do you think? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so it's very gamey. <laughs> Super bitey. And we were having kangaroo steaks, and there was a newspaper on the table. And I think it were, uh, I don't know why it came up, but it said the all white Australian policy was lifted 
in June of 1975. And I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. Wait, Stacy, they only let people that look like you mm-hmm. in a month after my birthday. Mm-hmm. So that is 100% in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. Why the fuck do you live in this country? Are you crazy? We all know how long it takes for things to work their yeah. way out. Yeah. That is like, that's like yesterday on the grand scheme of historical yeah. events. There's still a lot of shit and a lot of deep-seated emotional feelings, understanding, experiences that are rooted in that. Mm-hmm. And it seemed a little too ripe for me. So I, and my sister experienced some really unsavory things here in this country um, when she first arrived. She's probably still even now. Uh, that she'd never experienced before. Coming from Canada, she'd never experienced things like that. And so I had my backup when I moved here. No, I'm going to be 100% honest. I had my backup. I also was fucking traumatized from living in the U.S. Where every time I heard a siren, I had a stroke. Yeah. Every time I saw a police officer, I thought I was in trouble. Like So I was bringing all of that with me. And so then I was like, oh, and everybody's a white Australian that probably hates me. And you throw in a police officer. Like, I was like, like, I didn't know what to expect. So I had my backup. And I was always looking like (laughs) like a fucking spooked cat. You know, cat on a hot tin roof. Until I realized that where I live, it's, it's not anything. But then there's always a deep seated halting an intrinsic halting that will always there's it's always going to be there that i'm like never get too comfortable because you never know yeah because the life as you know life of people of color and i can only speak to mine as a black woman it we're we're code switching all the time we're always somebody else when we're outside of our door compared to who we are Mm -hmm. inside of our home Mm -hmm. and we kind of have to like mute ourselves so we're not stereotypically called this and that and the other thing. And so we're, we're used to going in and out of these personalities like a bunch of fucking psychotic people. Mm-hmm. Like we're having like 12 different personalities. So I never let my guard down. It's always there. I'm always going to be on, on. I mean, you see that which you explained just there. I had to give you a bit of that space so that you yeah, can articulate everything. No, it's good. It's because for me, I, I feel like what you're explaining is actually the complexities of what belonging is, uh, right? Moving from Canada to, you know, the U.S. and you there having a whole culture shock and whatever. And then moving from there, coming to Australia. And when you hear, obviously, still carrying some of the traumas from yeah. back where you came from. And you get here, you find that also here you got to now switch personalities again. And the whole idea of you probably might even be have 12 personalities, so to say. <laughs> It's, it's exactly the thing for me when I say if I have to have 12 personalities or however many many kinds that I have to have, it, can I still say I really do belong? And, and, and also, considering also the history of this country, I mean, you were talking about, you know, white policy being lifted in the 70s, but thinking carefully about today that the, the, there's still a whole lot of conversation and heard happening between white Australians and Aboriginal and yeah. Torres Strait Islander people. Yeah. And how the um, 
voice to parliament conversations now sort of splitting the country into two and some people do not even want to hide their so-called subtle racism and here you are as a migrant here i am as a migrant and i come into this space therefore how on earth can i claim to be belonging when there's people who are original owners of the land but they're still fighting struggling for and fighting for recognition mm. i really actually don't understand voice <laughs> yeah I don't really, it seems like a no-brainer to me. Sort of like, I don't even know why there's a conversation. I don't know why it wasn't in there years, decades, ages uh, yeah. ago. I mean, you know obviously I mean? there's been other things ages ago, but there's always been, you know. But I don't know why it's something that has to be put to a vote. <laughs> it's yeah. just not, Yeah. I don't get it. And I. And maybe, and maybe it's because I'm not from here that I just don't get it. Mm-hmm. I don't understand how it's a conversation. Um, though, saying that, my husband is exactly the same. He's like, and he's a white Australian. Mm-hmm. He's like, I just don't understand why it's a conversation. Just do it. Move on. Why is it even a vote? Why are we putting this to a vote? It's not something that needs to be voted about. It is the right thing to do. And it should have been done in every every opportunity to keep evolving it. should have been that's where we should be, mm-hmm. right? It shouldn't be like, oh, let's put it in now. It should have been like, oh, let's keep evolving it. Let's keep evolving it. Okay. Y- you understand? So, and I think what has kept me safe and kept me sane in all of my 12 personalities is the fact that I carry my home on my back. Right. And I don't rely on everything around me to make me feel like I'm somewhere where I should be. What I choose to do with my experience will indicate to me whether I need to be there or not, or if it's the right spot for me. So I know when we met up originally, mm-hmm. and we talked about starting comedy. Mm-hmm. A, crazy. Like, who does that? Who yeah. starts comedy? I like it, and I like the switch of gears. Let's talk, let's <laughs> yeah. talk more about it. I mean, comedy, comedy <laughs> your work, yeah. So I actually have always... I didn't, I, it, okay, just a little history on me and the way my brain works. There's a lot of things that don't occur to me. Okay. I live in a world that it just doesn't occur to me until someone tells me, and I'm like, oh, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> like, I literally need other people to help me with my blinders. So, there's a thing about me that not much occurs to me. <laughs> so, as I was growing up, there was this comedy club. It still exists in Canada. It was called Yuck Yucks, or it okay. is called Yuck Yucks. And ever since I was little, I was like, oh my God, I always want to be on stage at Yuck Yucks. I don't fucking know why. It was an open mic opportunity just to sit there and talk shit. Yeah, but it never actually occurred to me. Oh, you do that because you want to be a stand-up comedian. Okay. Like, I never put a name to it. I never put an understanding to it, but I never actually did it. And um, I've always, I love the sound of laughter. My favorite sound is my mother's laugh. And I would do, and I've always liked it. And I would do whatever I did, needed to do when I was, even now, just to hear her laugh. I will talk shit till we die just to hear my mother's laugh. I'll make stuff up. And I guess that has something to do with comedy. I don't know. I just want to make her laugh. Yeah. I love it to hear my mother's laugh. If I, make, if I can make my husband crack a smile... 
I'm fucking winning right. gold. <laughs> he doesn't laugh easy. Whoa. He's got this amazing chuckle that I love hearing. I love to hear my kids laugh. She laughs at anything. I'll just look at her and she's like, ah! she'll lose her mind. Right. So I've got three different levels. Right. And I just love to hear her laugh. So I guess, oh, I guess maybe that's a stand-up comic. Like you just, yeah. Like, yeah? Okay. So it didn't occur to me until 40 years later right. that that's what I maybe should try and do. I've always written. I'm a writer. I love writing. And I was working with two friends of mine. And I don't know how it really came up. I was like, yeah, I totally want to do stand-up comedy. And they invited me to be a part of an inclusion event. Um, the maiden voyage of, of, an, of an inclusion event, the Golden Pineapples. And that was the first time I ever did a comic set. But I did it here in Australia. Mm-hmm. And it was just, I'm a storyteller. I'll just talk about stuff. And it's my perspective. I don't know if that's got longevity. All yeah. I know is my life is a shit show. And it's, I always got something to talk about. Um, so I did this long set. And I never really, it wasn't that I uh, kept it light. I wasn't getting into anything. I was just just, just getting to know you kind of thing. Yeah. My comedy has always been about getting to know you as of late. And then I started going to open mics and like writing material. And I was like, oh, there's things that are coming up. There's things in pop culture. There's things in, in, in living, living organisms around me that I have opinions on that I want to talk about. And I found that I was code switching in my writing. Hmm. I was like, oh, I mean, there was one way that I would say this in North America. Mm-hmm. It's completely a different way that I would say mm-hmm. this in Australia. And I was like, wait, that can't be good. Should I just say it? But there's a whole, there's there's so many complicated layers to that. It's like, will will I be understood? Will it come across in a particular way? And, and I know that they say comedians or anybody should not write in a way that is not offensive, like be concerned about offending their audience because your audience will come to you regardless, whoever's supposed to but be who there. who says it? I don't know. I think I've heard it. Maybe I just make a shit up. I just assume right. that you shouldn't, like, you shouldn't write for who's in the room. Like, you shouldn't write for who's in the room. Like, as, a, as an actor, as a performer, you can't hold yourself back from that performance because you're worried about what people are going to think about you. That is the one thing about live performance. You give, it is what it is, and whoever is there will take whatever they want from it. Mm-hmm. So, But isn't any person, sorry, who steps okay. in a room... Shouldn't they be ready for whatever might land I mean, from the mic? I would think so. Because yeah, I'm 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 interested in that. But I mean now also with the whole culture of woke that has been used in a pejorative way to say people are woke. I don't know whether really means. Is it really a big thing to say woke? But probably basically I mean the progressive, you know. Mm. Very often we've sort of gotten to be a more fragile community so that each and every mm. little thing that you say we might actually twist it and then you know subject you to cancel culture mm. so but i'm thinking everybody who enters a room knowing that this is comedy you should be able to take in any anything and everything that's going to be said on stage i agree and i when i'd written this piece and it wasn't even um because i write based on my life my experience i'm only speaking to what I've experienced. Mm-hmm. And I think where I was like, ooh, how do I do this? The reality is 
we live in Newcastle. It is predominantly a white middle crowd, middle yeah. class city or mm-hmm. area that we live in. Mm-hmm. That is the majority of my audience that's going to come and see a show. Either it's going to be the parents of or the children of. Yeah. That sort of socioeconomic level. Yeah. And are they? Do they really want to hear about? Like really want to hear about the experiences of an expat black woman living in Australia. That in itself. <laughs> See, you're black. You're laughing because you understand it. You get it. Yeah. I don't even have to say anything to you and you understand it. Yeah. But when I start spelling it out, they're like, oh, damn. So you can't give them all yeah. of it. Because to say it to a group that you that identifies with you. There's a lot of shit you don't have to say. Yeah. Because you fucking, everybody caught you. Yeah. On that. You said your title and you're like, (laughs) (laughs) I got you. And you could probably end the joke right there. Right. But when you lay it out and you say a handful of things. So here's an example of an open mic situation I had. I just said, there's like a catalog of white experiences that black people don't necessarily and see you just laughed again because you know what i'm talking about you know what i'm talking about that we don't necessarily engage in and i just listed them and the first couple landed really well but then i felt the room get like uncomfortable uncomfortable. i was like why the fuck y'all uncomfortable about this shit i cannot walk around without any shoes downtown you can yeah I'd get sectioned. Exactly. 100%. Exactly. <laughs> and they're like, what? That's my experience. <laughs> As a black man, you were sitting there laughing. Your big eyes went, exactly. Because you know exactly what I'm talking about. I could be clutching a fucking Louis Vuitton handbag, carrying fucking Chanel shoes in my hand, and be the mm. people like, what? what? Oh yeah. my God, she just ran from the op shop? What happened to her? <laughs> no, I just took my fucking shoes off because it hurt my feet. Right? Yeah. So if I say that and I lay it out and I say it all, people are like, oh my God, I can't take this. So I found that I was code switching in open mic writing. Uh, but when I love an hour, so I haven't, I've done my hour a couple of times now and I have a new hour coming up or a new opportunity to do, uh, an opportunity to do a new hour, September 2nd mm-hmm. of this year. I can say this because it's a full show. Yeah, We're, we're having a chat. We're in it. Everybody in the room is in it to win it. You're going to understand who I am when you come in, and you're going to understand me more when you leave. Yeah. So you won't really get offended because you're getting the fuller picture. Five minutes, people yeah. are like, what the fuck? Yeah. And I remember at the end of that, people were like, uh, I mean, they were young. They're like, oh, yeah, well, we just started a race riot. I'm like, whoa. Ex- yeah. Explaining the experience an experience that isn't a white experience and just explaining it to a group of white people or explaining it to a group of people that don't look the same as the one explaining it. We're not creating an angry situation. It is not a race, Ryan. It is telling you what my life is like day in and day out. And it's really strange that that would make you uncomfortable. But it goes to a larger picture the whole concept of i don't see color yeah and if you don't see color that means you 100 percent see color unless you're colorblind mm-hmm. but it's the way that you react or the way that you uh engage with that 
if color walks into the room, sorry, if color walks into the room, it's whether you know that, oh shit, they must feel a little uncomfortable because they're the only one in the room. You know what I mean? Like if, if you, uh, you meaning a non person of color, if you can sort of understand that or even get that feeling, even a passing thought, then you don't see color. Or, or, or sorry, then you are yeah. engaging with the experience of somebody else. You are seeing it as uh, as this human experience. You, you, mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, see, or did I get lost in that? Not seeing colors, refusal to engage. Exactly. And I don't, that's bullshit. I see it all the fucking time. And I remember when we were looking for a school for our Billy. So Billy is biracial, um, which Billy is my seven-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was terrified to send her to school here because I just didn't know where she would fit in and how we as a family would fit in. And we're, we live quite close to a school. It's across the street. And I went in there <laughs> and I felt like I was in a zoo. I was like... Okay, there were far too many eyes on us. I know, like, oh. they're just, we walked in and everybody was like, what, wait, what's happening? I'm like, yes, he's six foot, blue eyes, brown hair. <laughs> I'm five two, dreads, brown skin. And we have this doe-eyed child, curly wild hair, big eyes, big gorgeous lips, and a little badunky. Yes. I understand that this is a little scary for you right now. You're like, what the fuck? Where do we look? Mm-hmm. And then the hands started coming towards hair, and I'm like, no, 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 no. Okay, so I already knew that this was going to be a probably a problematic school mm-hmm. because no one should ever feel like they're a spectacle. And I definitely didn't want to put my kid in that situation where she'd go to school every day and just experience these questions. Yes, out of curiosity, I get it, but I'm not that fucking curious. Billy's not curious. Yeah about her friend's hair. She couldn't care less. She's not curious about the food that they eat at home. She doesn't give a shit. So if my kid can be not curious, so can yours. Right? Yeah. It's more about the person's character and who they are, their soul, the conversation they have, what is in their mind, not what they fucking look like, not the kind of food that they eat, not the language they speak. Right? And so I knew that that school was not going to be a good fit for us. And so we went to another school, the school that she went to, is attending She now. Right now, yeah. I was a hot mess. <laughs> I mean, the, the school had, this other school had a whole bunch of other issues, and the kids, like, weren't talking, and all the people, the uh, adults were, like, on cocaine, and they were, like, really high octaves, and the kids all had their heads down, hands behind their backs, and I was like, hey, this is, like, children of the corn. This is really weird. <laughs> so I already, it was, a, it was a traumatic experience, and then... We went to the next school, and from the moment I got to the gate, there's all these kids, and they're all happy, and they're, hey, welcoming, I'll take you. And I was like, oh, my God, these kids, their souls are beautiful. And by the time I walked through the door to the time I got to the office, I was crying, ugly cry, snot bubbles, weeping. I was like, this is beautiful. And I sat down with them. (laughs) I sat down with the principal, and oh my god, she must have thought I was nutbag. She looked at me. She grabbed a box of Kleenex, and she just pushes it towards me. <laughs> I was like, like, thank you. Oh my god, I love it here. She was probably like, well, we got a live one here, right? right. Just yeah. a nutbag. But I knew. <laughs> I knew that was where we belonged as a family. I knew we weren't going to be 
under a microscope. But then again, Billy still had the experience of having seven children's hands, 14 sets of 14 hands in her hair at one time. Whoa. In kindergarten. Her hair was out. And I do this as a test. I actually leave her hair out in situations because I want to know how it's going to go. I want to know if people can get over that shit in 45 seconds or not. And if it takes longer than a minute, it's not our spot. And the kids had, they're like, oh, and they were laughing. And Billy was protesting. She was saying, stop, no, no, no. And none of them knew that they should stop. And, well, you know me. <laughs> Crazy. Went down to the school. I was like, mm I'm not having this. And we went and we sorted the situation out. And the school was really receptive. Principal and I sat down. Principal, vice principal and I sat down. We uh, brought in uh, a really wonderful book. Uh, it's Don't Touch My Hair. Mm-hmm. Put it into the library. It was shared with the kids. They brought it into the curriculum. They talked about it. Mm. And I said, this is not happening. And now it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen at our school. That, that, actually, that's not true. I recant. doesn't happen to the same extent. It happened again. And I said, Billy, take the book. Obviously, they need to refresh her. So she brought the book back in and she read it herself. So when it happened, it was in kindergarten. The teacher shared it with the kids. They all talked about it. I has, it has a lot more impact when wow. you do it yourself. So she said, oh, for my next show and tell her whatever, I'm going to bring in this book and I'm going to read it to the class. And I'm going to explain to them that this is me. And this experience is what it's like for me. So keep your fucking hands out of my hair. Let me take you back to America, but uh-huh. still within this very same conversation. Uh-huh. We see when Judge Ketanji Brown is, uh-huh. you know, going through all the grilling and whatsoever, Ooh. and you hear likes of Ted Cruz, likes of uh, Ben Shapiro coming up and you know criticizing your Ibram X Kendi's book, how not to be an, how to be an anti-racist. Even for kids, but obviously Cruz quoting, you know, ex Kenny off, you know, context and saying he's sort of teaching black kids to see white kids as inherently racist. But of which what Kenny was trying to do is to actually even point out and using data to point out that kids can actually learn this negative bad behavior from parents and therefore if they are taught from younger age how to you know treat people of different color different religion and sexuality and so on and so forth which well obviously sexuality is something else in this conversation for now um saying they need to sort of teach kids while they're still young but a lot of people actually came against him and now i'm thinking about you talking about a book that was taken to billy's school and the book is doing, is having a bit of an impact in the school. Yes, if there's certain things will sort of take a bit of time, but gradually some people will get it. Some people might not still be been getting it, especially because we don't know what is happening in their homes. Uh, uh. How do you make sense of all this? So, I can bring to a very specific uh, situation after the really devastating George Floyd experience for us all um my kid was still in preschool at the time Uh or daycare and so that conversation started coming up because we were living in this country australia where the sort of leading way to go is i don't see color and everybody's the same we're all beautiful Uh it's that um it was about having these conversations 
at your dinner table. So the conversations that happen at my daughter's peers' tables is very different from the conversations that happen on our table. We spend our lives raising children of color Mm -hmm. not to look at their peers in a negative way and say, they're all going to hate me, but to let them know and prepare them for the one opportunity that one person is going to walk into the room and not like them simply because of the way that they look. That is what we're preparing them for. We're not saying that everybody is racist. We're not saying that anybody's racist, but we are telling them that you need to be on it and you need to know how to deal with it and not walk into it not seeing color. You are a different color. You are different. You look different from your peers. And one day someone is going to point that out to you. In a way, it may be really subtle. They're going to put their hands in your hair. They're going to do things or blatantly say it to your face. Mm-hmm. And it's my job to prepare you so you don't fucking go off the deep end and end up in a mental health crisis. So if I can talk to my child, who is three, who is four, about racial inequality and conversations about race and differences at the dinner table, so can white, my white brothers and sisters. Yeah. I would hear, and, and when she was in daycare, there was, uh, they were great. But they definitely, thoughts came up of like, Ooh, some parents are going to, there's going to be backlash if we talk about this because they're going to say their kids are too young. If my kid can hear it, so can yours. Yeah. My kid is the same age as yours. Why yeah. is all of a sudden my kid okay to hear it? The real devastating shit that she could experience in her life. But yours can't handle the conversation of, you're going to have a kid that looks different from you in your class. Mm-hmm. And it's not about the way that they look. It's about what's in their heart and in their mind. And you need to just talk to them in that way. And it doesn't matter. That's a much easier conversation. yeah. Way so why can't you have that right yeah. so there's this like interesting thing and i and I, sam and i my husband we talked about it at dinner and there was he even even to learning curve even for us as a family because i've never we've also never had to go through this either sam and i because every country we went to we were always a foreigner we always looked different from everybody that we were around mm-hmm. didn't matter where we were that was our relationship and then we moved to australia and then had a child who we have to advocate for. And he has to advocate for being her white parent. Mm -hmm. And I would say before school, not like as we were looking for schools before she went into uh, primary school, you know, Billy, you know, she's black, she's black, she's black. And he said to me, he's like, yes, we know. Why do we have to keep saying it? Because it doesn't come off. Yeah. That's why we have to keep saying it. And for him, it was like, well, she's heard it once. We've heard it once. We know it. And I'm like, but our experience is we get told all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and it was even in that moment, it was like, oh, yeah, no, yeah, no. I get it. I understand what you're talking about. And I understand that you can't change it. But it doesn't change who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a complex, man, it's keeping me on my toes, that's for sure. Um and quite frankly, it wasn't really anything that I thought I even, it never occurred to me that this was what I was going to have to do. But it is what it is. Yes, I think we can get back to your comedy. Yes. How, how do you then find your inspiration or your motivation to write content that 
your audience can receive it and at the same time you can feel so good and happy about delivering it? Um, so, like anything, it's a dynamic journey. Yeah, it's always going to keep changing, especially when the material changes. Um, but because I... I don't want this to sound the way that it might sound, but it's going to sound. Oh, no, it's going to sound. No, that you said it. <laughs> I think I have like a natural comedic timing. Okay. Like I have a natural comedic rhythm that I just look at life, even in the worst situations. It'll be bad for a hot minute, and then I'll be like, "Are you fucking kidding me? That was ridiculous." And I'm always going to find the ridiculousness of it, the comedy yeah. of it. Yeah. And the most beautiful moments are the hardest moments that you can find that glimmer of light. And usually with laughter, with joy, is that glimmer of light even in the darkest spot. So because my content is really rooted in my experience, like if I, can't, if I don't experience it, how can I write anything about it? It's not going to be funny. So I'm not a one-liner, just write a joke and punch a punchline. I don't even, I don't even fucking know what that is. I just will tell a story or I'll just share just like us chatting. Yeah. And then I will, <laughs> and then it'll just be really funny to me because I found it funny. So when I write, or, or this journey of stand-up comedy, I've realized that every time I write something, uh, it actually isn't very funny to me anymore. Because writing for me is really cathartic. Okay. So I've always, I always did that. I journaled to get shit out. So when I write it, and I'm like, ah, then it's gone. I'm like, oh, that was a great experience. Okay, now it's gone. So what I do is I, I will write just to remember the situation. Okay. And then cross my fingers. So the first bunch of times I did my show, I actually wrote the entire thing. So the very first time I did it, wrote the entire thing and ultimately memorized it. But they were really funny stories. They were like the really shockingly funny situations. And I just retold the story. And then the next time I did it, I wrote it again. I did it in bullet port, uh, bullet form, bullet points. And there were uh, sections, like what it was going to be about, content, what it was going to be about. And a lot. I had a lot. Most of it I didn't get to. And I still was really nervous. So in all of the experiences, barring my last one, I had fun. The audience received it really well. They had a really good time, really engaged with it. But I walked away feeling like absolute shit. I realized that I was pushing too hard. Because I was trying to remember things, oh. it didn't was it didn't feel organic. Because I was like trying to hype up a story that didn't actually need hyping. It was fine the way that it stood. Um, my voice was gone. I had a headache. I felt nauseous. I felt like shit at the end of the show. I didn't really enjoy it. I was speaking too fast. So then this last time, I went in and I couldn't write it. So I did a show in September and then I had my next one in March and I was going to do some new content and I had nothing. It took six months and I couldn't write a word. I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to, I don't know what to write. I, 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 I have to do an hour and I got nothing. 
like everybody that met me and like all my friends were like, how you doing? I'm like, I got nothing. So make some shit happen right now. I got nothing. Yeah. And I wrote my last sentence at 5 p.m. on a Friday and I was supposed to perform it on a Saturday. I was like, okay, fuck, I gotta pick up Billy. Let's write this real quick. Okay, cool, cool, cool. I'm like, okay, I gotta learn it. But we had to do bump in. And I'm like, I gotta read this show. I really gotta read this show. Sam, are we done? I got, he's like, no. And I was like, I read this fucking show. And then I went out and like the day of and the morning of and right before it, I had nothing in my brain. Nothing. I'm like, I can't remember anything. Oh my God, there's nothing there. It was the best show of my life. Wow. Because... I wrote a little list of what the order was and things that would trigger, but I didn't memorize it. And I just had a conversation and I had so much fun. I forgot shit. I realized as I was saying that I forgot it and I just said, Mother- motherfuckers, I just forgot some shit. Yeah. I'm double back. <laughs> right. I'm going to do that again. Yeah. And I just was really, really, really in the moment. Do you do, you do that again also on lines that might have not landed well the first time on the audience and if we'll, i need to reprise this but this time around with a great punch or something i mean i could actually i couldn't tell what was going on with the audience i couldn't tell mm-hmm. all, all of my previous shows a i couldn't see them mm-hmm. uh, b i was too fast uh, uh i could hear them but not australian audiences tend to be quite reserved granted i had very warm audience most of the i wouldn't say most of them are my friends i had like 10 friends who brought friends <laughs> right so i always knew we gonna have cool people in the yeah. fucking audience because yeah. 10 of them are my homies yeah right you know what i mean i'm yeah. like if they're gonna bring some cool people my cool people don't hang out with not cool people <laughs> so right. i already know there's gonna be cool people there yeah so i always felt quite safe so this next show that i have i'm really pushing myself right tell us a bit about it it's gonna be a bigger sh- uh, like the show is the same but bigger in terms of uh guests invited mm-hmm. so we're pushing for like 250 300 <gasps> that's terrifying to see if i can even sell that many tickets connecting it to um there's a charitable charitable I- initiative involved in this one my husband is writing uh it's called tour uh tour de cure mm-hmm. so it's a cancer charity or cancer fundraising initiative that is like funds cancer projects and their goal is to create a future that is cancer free and he is riding from adelaide to hobart or hobart to adelaide mm-hmm. on a bicycle <laughs> how many k's there how many miles a lot yeah isn't it a lot it's a lot I mean, from the, here to my kitchen for me is a lot <laughs> so yeah that's a lot hobart to adelaide I think it's like 12,000. Wow. And they are doing it in honor. Uh, so it's my sister, my uh, Sam's youngest sister, my sister-in-law, and my husband Sam are doing it in honor of uh, his, uh, my sister-in-law's partner who passed away last November. Uh, he battled like a warrior. Uh, and it's his legacy, yeah? He was also a cyclist. So they're cycling for him. And so it's connected to that. So a portion of the ticket sales will go to uh, his ride, Sam's ride. And then Billy is launching. I mean, motherfuckers, we turn up. It's, it's a family business. Yeah. Everybody works. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody work. <laughs> you set it up, you take it down, and you earn. <laughs> Everybody. So Billy is starting a new little uh, business because she 
is real tactile. <laughs> she always has some shit in her hands. Yeah. Really super crafty, but she's always either got blue tack or fucking silly putty or some plasticine that's getting stuck in every nook and cranny of the house. And I was like, Billy, why don't we make something with the shit that's always in your hands yeah. rather than just sticking it randomly and arbitrarily all over the fucking house? Why don't you make something, shape something, sculpt something, bake it, and then sell it? Yeah. And she's like, oh my God, that's such a good idea. So Billy Collective and her polymer clay line will be all in the show. Oh, nice. And then me doing an hour of just talking shit. And literally, my show is like what we just did here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, except I'm just talking out to the audience and, and we're just sharing. I'm just sharing. Yeah. And we're going to do with either race stuff. Cause you want, sorry? With either race stuff, the racism, because, yeah. Some well, of no, like, I mean, Ooh. I mean, some of, some of it is in there. I, oh, I okay. do. I mean, I, I don't get super crazy anyway with it. I don't yeah. need to sit there on a, I'm not on a pulpit. Yeah. I'm not trying to preach to you or, or tell you. I'm literally explaining what my life is like. Mm-hmm. Like, the stuff that comes out of my kid's mouth blows my mind. I think a lot of my uh, my core demographic are parents. Okay. Uh, because you get it. Yeah. Right? And <laughs> I would have more... I would have more conversations about the experience of being a black woman if more people in the audience were of color. Yeah. Because you'd get it. Yeah. Right? It would be relatable. So I talk about relatable stuff. And my role is I'm a parent to a young child in primary school. I teach adults. I teach children. I'm perimenopausal. I'm a fucking middle-aged woman. Trust me, that's a whole show by itself. <laughs> I'm black, <laughs> and I'm an expat. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of shit going on. Yeah, so I don't need to make up jokes. <laughs> All right. Do Do you ever speak about the LGBT experiences? And Actually, I and did. How do people respond to that? It came up in um my last show and it'll probably be this one again but the lgbtqia plus uh i have got a soft spot for that beautiful community uh i <laughs> i was a bit of a gay icon okay back in the day <laughs> okay when i had legs <laughs> right gay men loved me i was like catnip <laughs> Gay men loved me. I think they still do love me. We're just a little older now. <laughs> There's more to hold on to now. <laughs> so I used to go-go dance at a gay bar called Pop Stars. <laughs> of course I did. High kicks. Deep squats. <laughs> gay men's fingers in my boots with dollars. Oh my loved it. Um, in California, West Hollywood. Um, and so <laughs> I have like a, a string of gay men in my life that Billy, I was like, oh, this is uncle this, this is uncle that, uncle, uncle. She's like, why do I have so many uncles? I'm like, oh, baby girl, you got no idea. These gay men and me, I tell you. And one of my really good friends who I had a crush on. Okay. Probably because he's gay. And he had a crush on me. Probably because he's a gay man. 
and then he realized that it was okay. He had said to me, Stella, you are everything heterosexual, uh, cisgendered yeah. woman. Yeah. But spiritually, <laughs> you're a gay man. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I could get up more. <laughs> so, uh, my spirit animal is a gay man. Which is funny because TikTok says that the spirit animal for gay men is a sassy big black woman. Okay. So <laughs> it's like a one-stop motherfucking shop. <laughs> I am TikTok. And here are you said to me you're not on TikTok. I mean, look at yourself, your whole TikTok. <laughs> I don't, right? But I'm a terrible content creator. I'm like, what do I do? Oh, my head is sore. <laughs> uh, I love it. I love it. I gave the man a headache. <laughs> so yes, in terms of my uh, love and appreciation for that beautiful my rainbow community, um, I've just had a lot of LGBTQ folks in my life, um, and that have in, in in real formidable years of my life. Like when I was going through some really tough shit in my twenties, that was when I was just immersed and seeped in the gay community and i just felt really safe like that was the place where i was like Mm -hmm. oh i i feel um safe wanted protected loved appreciated so it has just been you know that's just where i am and so billy turns to me so she we we love we're connoisseurs of queer eye yeah She's like new age queer eye. I was like back old school queer eye. Bravo. But she's new age binge watching. Right. <laughs> she's the binge watching generation. My kid cannot sit through a movie. Oh. Because it's too long. That's what she says to me. It's too long. But you can sit through 15 episodes <laughs> on queer eye at one time. You know, it's like 15 hours. An hour, a movie. An hour. It's too long. Anyway. So she loves queer eye. And she literally will sit there. And she'll have a cry because I do the same thing. We're like, I just need a good gay man to just cry. <laughs> I need a cathartic. Let's watch some queer eye, and we'll we'll have a cry. And she turned to me six o'clock in the morning, one morning before the cows were crowing. I mean, the rooster was crowing and the cows were moving. And she said, "Mummy, yes, Billy. What does queer mean?" I'm like, "Whoa, okay, wow, really." <laughs> You can't just ask why Laura has two mummies. <laughs> the much easier question to answer. Queer. Oh, that's a big umbrella. Yeah, Do we yeah. really? Should we? I mean, I haven't even had a chai tea yet. Yeah. How do we answer this? To a seven-year-old, how do you answer that question? And I gave her whatever I could come up with. And then I said to her, and then she turns to me, she cuts me off. She's like, uh, uh, okay, so you're a gay woman. Wait, what? Okay. <laughs> wait, Billy, wait. After all... Wait, no. No, no, Billy. It's Sam, this was in bed. So Sam's lying there, and I'm like, nope. Nope. You're a gay woman. Nope. 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 I'm not gay. Yep. You're gay. You're gay. Nope. Nope. She doubled down, tripled, quadrupled down. You're gay. You're gay. You're gay. You're gay. I was like, okay, I'm gay. Oh, let's go. I'm going to lean into it, because it's far too early in the morning to be battling with a seven-year-old. Right. Got up, went to the washroom. I'm thinking to myself, what? what does she think gay means? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I came back. I said, Billy, what do you think gay means? She's like, well, they're kind and loving, fabulous and fantastically dressed. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, oh 100% right. I'm a gay woman. <laughs> Fucking nailed it, kid. 
You nailed it. She she took it back because because gained it you know way back time way back was just happy and joyful exactly yeah. yeah she's like an old soul she was like no I get it yeah you're like Jonathan Van Ness but not <laughs> okay yeah so it's an interesting and now she's like I want to be gay you can be oh, whatever you want okay like, quite frankly <laughs> do whatever you want right <laughs> I'm cool just eat your dinner eat your greens yeah. go to school and don't beat anybody up yeah. that's kind of where my standard is right always put your best foot forward be kind be loving mm-hmm. but be whatever you want mm-hmm. so but obviously then if you are to write something let's say you were to write something in line with the lgbt but maybe mostly the trans narrative which is sort of dominating right now yeah, the conversation yeah how how would your writing look like is that something you'd really dare to engage in uh, well i don't to, to? to be honest i actually don't have I don't actually have any trans brothers and sisters in my life that I know their experience of so it would all be secondhand knowledge thirdhand right. knowledge I'd always be catching it yeah. for my opinion of but I don't necessarily like to comment on something that I haven't engaged in yeah. because I just think that I'm just another armchair just getting involved in a conversation that I have no business being a part of Yeah, because it hasn't come into my life um it's what I do say about the trans narrative right now is the same thing I say about everything. St- <laughs> Leave people alone. Stop fucking with people. Right. People need to be loved and accepted for whatever, whoever they want to be and whoever they feel that they are. Who, who are you? How clean is your fucking backyard that you need to be turning your eyes to somebody else? Like, you know what I mean? So I don't understand why there's always this, but I do understand it because what else are we going to talk about? But there's always this, there's such like, oh, let's get involved in this person's and that person's and this. I'm like, fuck, how clean is your shit that you need to be looking in other people's backyards? Right. I don't have time for that. <laughs> I really don't. I'm like, I can barely remember whether I took my kid to school or not let alone get involved in some shit that has nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. But if someone came to me in support of 100%. Right. And if you want to engage in a conversation with me, it's going to be from a place of support mm-hmm. and an ally, not, I'm not going to get so deep in it. Like, Oh, they should be doing this or they should be doing, <laughs> I, mean, right. I should be running five fucking kilometers a day to lose some belly fat, but I don't. So we move on. <laughs> Right. There's a lot of shit I right. should be doing. Why do I need right. to be talking about yours? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So, but apart from the fact that I think in your response, I could be wrong, but you, you'll, you'll let me know. Uh, you, you're more interested in what they do in their own personal spaces and with their bodies or whatever the case. But I'm more also thinking in the context of now policy, when policy has to be changed. And then now you think of Bill C-16 in, in Canada. That now <clears throat> sort of added gender and sexuality aspect is no longer a case of, you know, making sure that uh, people of different race groups or religion are sort of respected. But now it gets into policy and you discover that then the policy can often, you know, overlook other minorities which have been have been there for quite a long time. But now we're making the new trend sort of the new sexuality as a trend and a new conversation. I think every single human being should be protected under policy. Mm-hmm. I don't differentiate. Yeah. And w- 
more protection should be put in line for more disenfranchised more, uh, or more at-risk communities mm-hmm. to protect them more. Because when you think of like, or let's see if I'm actually saying this right. Like the protections for our trans communities all the way down there. The, maybe the protection for our black communities like a little bit higher. So you give a little bit more to trans so you bring them up to the same level. Does that make sense? You give a little bit more to people who are more at risk to even the playing field to eventually where we're all exactly the same protections. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So I don't know, quantify it. So I don't know, there's five laws protecting our trans community. There's three laws protecting the blacks, but they're coming up and it's equal at five and three because they're even more at risk mm-hmm. at the moment. But this is a thing <laughs> Sorry. in terms of how do we argue in terms of, I mean, being black and also the notion of trans? You try to sort of put them in the very same pedestal. I'm thinking, is that, can that ever reach a certain level of equality, so to say? I mean, you've got black humans that are trans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know how much more difficult. But very often being black you don't have to prove to anyone that i'm black yeah because you are what you are when you walk in the door yeah you can see it whereas being trans on the other side is completely different which is why i'm trying to sort of make sense of the equality in that kind of a sense but do you have to prove that you're trans i think with the the way in which the conversations have escalated now well, for me, I'm still trying to understand even many things that is being said by the trans community, right? Because as some would say, it's a matter of how you feel like. Yeah. Right? And it being a matter of how you feel like, and then the whole conversation that Tony doesn't have to go and do, you know, your genitalia or whatever, surgeries and so on, and use puberty blockers and so on and so forth. But not being able to do that has actually led to certain cases in the U.S., where you find men, straight cisgendered men who would go and commit a crime and then when they go into a court case, all of a sudden they identify as, because I feel like, then you put them in a women or, well, female prison and then you discover that they're getting other female pregnant in there. Therefore, where's the scope of definition as to say, you don't have to really prove your trans aspect because I think it has escalated to that kind of way, the direction for me, I feel like it needs to be more clarified. So I could ad- I could come and weaponize the sexuality in the sense that I'll say I'm a trans man, so I could be put in a woman prison, a female prison, as opposed to put in a uh, male prison. Uh, okay, I'm a trans man. Why are you putting me in a female prison? Or do I want to be in a female prison? I'm a trans man, so I deserve to be in a woman's prison. I'm a because I, I identify as a woman, so I have to put uh, me in a woman prison. As uh, opposed to putting me in a male prison, but then when I go to a woman prison, then there's all that cisgendered character, heterosexual. Because I haven't had my out. surgeries, if you will. Because I haven't had my surgeries, you know. So, I think that's a bit above my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 
<sighs> but I'll try and unpack. <laughs> Legislatively, and I, I think I can only think as far as my brain and my understanding will let me go right now in this moment. I think that the protections for uh, our trans people really needs to be, that's the conversation that we're in right now. And it needs to be much more effective legislation that is going to actually protect and not sit there and armchair and dictate what this person should and should not be feeling and should and should not be feeling and doing and, and expressing themselves. And it is not my job or anyone's job to say that what you feel is wrong and what your choices you're making for yourself are wrong because trans trans protections just like women's rights and abortion is having someone come in and say what you can and cannot do with your body mm-hmm. go fuck yourself it's not about you that's how i feel right <laughs> that answer question <laughs> did i unpack it enough <laughs> my know. pay grade did i just I get paid <laughs> i just got paid <laughs> who knows yeah i think i think there's really a lot of complexity see what i was talking about yeah I think there's a lot of complexities with it for me, which is why sometimes it's a little bit difficult to engage yeah. in. Because you might engage in it and you, say, you try to sort of catch logic, but people are like, you're being transphobic. Because that's a thing also about today's law. Yeah. Right? That if you ask a question for clarity and you bring a bit of a complicated situation to say, take us out of this, which legislatures should be doing that, to educate us and say, okay, the, you know, things might be having certain complexities but how do we navigate our space within the complexities so yeah. we need to know how to do that. yeah so and it's I a think little bit of a it's a gray murky area because yeah. it's all now and extensive though the trans community has been around forever it's just now that they're finally getting a voice yeah and, and, and i mean for me again other things are obviously personal i mean some people would engage in this conversation without sort of speaking out their biases about uh-huh. things i don't i don't i wouldn't say i've got a negative bias so to say but it's just a little bit of a concerning thing for me uh-huh. as a black person being told that i'm not a minority yeah but then you know i'm being challenged that it's either if you're a woman or you're a trans person or then you are an aboriginal person then you'd be re- you'd be considered as a minority i mean then i'm thinking why wouldn't people weaponize sexuality and then i come as a cisgender hetero man and say okay i identify as a woman yeah and because the current trans narrative does not dictate to Tony having to go and do you know um surgery so i can just come as i am and say i identify as a woman give me a job I mean, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's a lot to unpack. Then I'm not versed enough to comment on something because I think I think it's a lot more complex than literally using it to benefit because I don't think anyone would make this decision or outrightly speak about this yeah. if this was not something yeah. that was breaking yeah. their heart and yeah. giving them mental health issues and making them unhappy in their lives that is it is like being black it is not something we choose we just do what we can to live within it and be happy within it and we have to figure out the way that we will be the happiest in whatever situation that we're in right clear clear enough yeah i do i do totally agree because at the same time i'm not saying it's going to be everybody who weaponizes it exactly really are genuine in their genuine and i would assume that the majority of people that are willing to go down that route are genuine yeah. it's not a fucking easy road yeah. like I'm, there's no way i would choose to do that with all of the backlash are you kidding me yeah. Nah. yeah it's hard it's hard living yeah so yeah 
So another thing that you do is yoga. I do. I teach yoga. Well, I I taught. Yeah, I haven't taught yoga in a hot second. Mm-hmm. There's something really interesting about yoga. Yoga <laughs> is a practice um, created by brown people, and um, there's also Kemet yoga, which is was founded, created in Egypt, so by Africans. Um, and sort of the new westernized yoga. Uh, the westernized wellness industry is an industry that I struggle to fit into, even though technically I'm supposed to belong to it because I'm certified in it, but I don't feel like it's an industry that I belong in. Um, I do as, as a teacher for whoever I teach, but anything outside of that, I, I'm not your typical yoga teacher. Right. I eat it, skin it, breathe it, drink a glass of wine, and fucking swear in class. Because my experience with yoga yoga is breath breath is life and you have to be able to live and breathe at the same time move breathe pray give gratitude receive help be humble be gracious and breathe at the same time say thank you walk away don't create pain you know make decisions based on what is good for somebody else and not necessarily what is good for yourself let go of some shit mm-hmm. That's the way I see yoga. It doesn't necessarily fit into the larger narrative of yoga. So I haven't taught it for a while. I have to wait till it's the right situation for me to teach again. I usually love my students that I teach and the the right. the, the breath of of the 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 where they let me go. They're really gracious. I've found that I've been able to teach some really lovely people that are really gracious with my approach to yoga. And we all just get in there, we do it, and it's a journey together. It's my job to guide, to keep you safe, and so you feel empowered and to have fun in your practice. That's it. That's that's what I'm supposed to do. Beyond that, it's not my job. It's not my job to tell you it's my job to tell you to squeeze your ass and pull your belly in and to breathe at the same time but it's not my job to assign things to you to say that you're good or you're bad or you're doing this wrong or whatever does that make sense right yeah yeah. so I I was a little bit fascinated with that and now when you're speaking of yoga you know you say it merged from Egypt Kemet yoga did Kemet yeah Yeah. hmm there's a practice. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm trying to figure out then at what time does it sort of become very popular in South Asia? Oh, so, yeah, yes. It also originated from there as well. Right. Ashtanga yeah. yoga. So that's the eight limbs of yoga. Right. Yeah. So there's, I mean, if we, if I, I kind of strip it down, it, it's movement, breath, prayer, and reverence all mixed together. Mm-hmm. And principles to live by, which I think make you a good person. Um, and the the asana practice started in places that were populated by people of color, but it's been famousized <laughs> by not those people. So, yeah, obviously, yeah. It's an interesting approach. I had I had um, said guru actually talking about yoga and also problematizing the fact that it's now commercialized. It's Everybody's commercial. just making just making a buck. money out of it, out of it, right? Yeah. And also talking about the fact that so I don't know how how you you respond to this. The fact that 
somebody who's sort of you know on a journey with yoga like you said so for him yoga is sort of one being in unity with the self and exactly. the world with the earth yeah, exactly right so he says um if i want to do yoga i need to find a sad guru which it's different to the so-called gurus that people are sort of calling themselves today. Basically, people saying they're gurus, meaning they're good, they're experts in something. Mm-hmm. But a sad guru would be somebody, so obviously part of the Indian community, uh, the emergence of it, and he speaks of a guy called, uh, oh, I had the name now, Ed, I forgot the name, but Adiyogi, Adiyogis, something like that. Um, who actually refused to teach people yoga for quite a long time when they tried to sort of plead with him to teach them he refused because he was like this is not just something very lit that you can sort of experiment with it needs a certain level of discipline mm-hmm. so therefore if you adiyogi i think it's called adiyogi so if you need to do yoga you need to have a sad guru who acts almost like your doctor. Mm. So like you speak to your psychiatrist, they understand mm. your emotions and your feelings and so on and so forth. They can tell you things that will probably trigger you, things you should avoid and so on and so forth. Yeah. So said guru has to sort of learn and master your emotions and also master your body posture so that you can even be able to sort of meditate if you're going to meditation for about two hours sitting in one position, one position. without feeling any kind of pain. Yeah. Which for today is a completely different things with some of the commercialized style. It's more of an Insta type of let's do yoga and do a lot of billion postures in a day or whatsoever. And I'm not sure whether it's working or not because I've never tried yoga. So I'm not going to speak much more about that. But you, the uh, teacher, you can sort of maybe um, say something about that. I find that um, the modern day yoga is actually not as inclusive as it says that it is. It's an ableist practice. Okay. And I, social media has definitely contributed to that, where it's become so trendy to post what you can do and show people what you can do. Yoga is a real private journey. It's a private journey that yeah. should be done without cameras, without a mirror. Go into a room, get your shit done, be one with everything yeah. in unity. It's not. It's not a public conversation, right? And I think that's what's gotten a little sticky, and that's another reason why I've backed off from it because. Uh, to to get people in the door or to get a job or like in Los Angeles, I would have fucking to, had to audition as a yoga teacher. Wow. Like it's so competitive. And I'm like, really? Shouldn't we just, I'm certified in, if there's space and I'm good enough, whatever. Yeah. Shouldn't it just be like, give me a try and let's see how it goes. It's see whether people align. How can you say, it's a spiritual practice. So how can you say, oh, no, no one's going to like you based on what I look like? Well, it has nothing to do with what I look like. Yeah. It's about what I make that person feel or yeah. what that person feels with me, how we make each other feel. Because it's a spiritual practice. It is something that is internal. It is m- merging the mind, body, and soul together. So it has nothing to do with the way that I look and what I can do. It has nothing to do with me being able to do a handstand or a a bridge a kickover it has nothing to do with that yeah but it has everything to do with being able to put these three components together but are we ever going to get there <laughs> no i mean i think we do in pockets yeah no it's i mean i i think that ship has sailed right 
But then aren't you running the risk of being called a certain cult if you want to do it like privately and you don't do all the what other people are doing in a more commercialized way? So for instance, if you say you want to run, you, know, you, you get, let's say you get back whatever, a couple of months or years you come back and the way you want to practice it, you sort of want to stick to exactly how yoga was practiced in the ancient times as opposed to the commercialized one today. Won't, aren't you sort of worried that you might be categorized as a cult kind of person? Uh, well, I cult? just want to practice yoga the way that I've interpreted yoga. Right. And I want to share it because that's, for me, it's about sharing this experience. And I take what has landed with me, the one that's resonated with me the most, mm -hmm is what I would share as a yoga teacher. So I go out and I get a certification, yeah. I did my studies, I'm a teacher, and so now, but it's up to me how I want to teach my class. Right. And I'm not gonna be posting shit on Instagram. I'm not gonna be making everybody do a handstand. I will tr get you, help you get your body to a point <laughs> where eventually you'll fly up without even knowing it. Right. But it's not about, I'm gonna love you whether you can do it or not. Uh-huh. I don't really care what you can do. It's yeah. whether you are happy and healthy and safe in my class. That's what matters to me. Right. That's amazing. <laughs> she says. <laughs> That's really amazing. <laughs> and then it's fucking boot camp. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Stella, it was really great having a chat with you. Thank you, you too. Um, really loved, you know, this moment. Yeah, it was wonderful. And, and looking forward to meeting you again and coming to your show. Yes, and bring some um, crew. Yeah, we'll try to do that. Just, just few little deets again on about the show. How yes. can people get access to the um, uh, tickets, tickets, and how can people get access to you if they need to get access to you for your work and stuff? So uh, the show will be, and it's called uh, Saturday Night Stella, everything and nothing at all. Um, September second to Saturday. Mm -hmm. Show is an hour. Where doors will uh, market stall will open at six thirty. Doors are at seven. You can get food and drink on site, and it will be held at Souths Merryweather, which is a rugby a rugby league club. Yeah. Um, and tickets uh, they're fifty two dollars. Tickets are fifty two dollars, and again, a portion of that is going to um, tour to cure for cancer research. And it's just an hour of co it's actually more than an hour, but it's a night of live comedy shopping contribution and a live dj um so and i can be found easily stella yume instagram stellayume.com um is my website uh and when the tickets go on sale they'll be available through many avenues and they can always find it on my socials or the website here we go. Here we go. That was Stella, ladies and gentlemen, and thanks for choosing the visions and tones. As I always say, go ye and be the best human beings, be best versions of yourselves, and I'll see you next time. Bye. Cheers. <laughs>